morning for our scripture reading, we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Apostle here in this chapter is responding to false teachers who were questioning and causing others to question whether Paul was a true apostle and perhaps even had asked for letters proving his authenticity as an apostle. And this chapter is his response. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones, was glorious. That's a reference to the law. So that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect, by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious, seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, 
are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. We read that far in God's holy and inspired word. We consider this morning the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 44. What doth the Tenth Commandment require of us? That even the smallest inclination or thought, contrary to any of God's commandments, never rise in our hearts. But that at all times we hate all sin with our whole heart, and delight in all righteousness. But can those who are converted to God perfectly keep these commandments? No. But even the holiest men, while in this life, have only a small beginning of this obedience. Yet so, that with a sincere resolution they began to live, not only according to some, but all the commandments of God. Why will God then have the Ten Commandments so strictly preached, since no man in this life can keep them? First, that all our lifetime we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature, and thus become the more earnest in seeking the remission of sin and righteousness in Christ. Likewise, that we constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, that we may become more and more conformable to the image of God, till we arrive at the perfection proposed to us in a life to come. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we may be thankful for this instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in that it expands on and doesn't treat strictly only the Tenth Commandment, but uses the occasion of its treatment of the Tenth Commandment to expound on the subject matter, namely the relationship of the Christian to the law of God, the relationship of the law of God to the gospel, and in so doing sets forth a portrait of the ordinary Christian life. So that even as one can see the image of Jesus Christ when he looks at the mirror of the gospel, as we read in 2 Corinthians 3, so also we may see ourselves when we look at Lord's Day 44. This is a wonderful place and an appropriate place for our fathers to give this exposition. First of all, because it is done in connection with the Tenth Commandment itself. The Tenth Commandment reveals the nature of the entire law. The Tenth Commandment is the one that addresses the heart and shows that keeping the commandments is not simply a matter of outward observance or matter of duty, 
but is something that the child of God should will to do in the heart. And so that says something about the entire Christian life. Not only does that, but it does it at the end of the treatment of the law. And that's important because we have learned that the law is the rule or the guide for a thankful life. It sets forth what that law says not only, but it points out that the law sets forth what the Christian life should look like, what it's all about. And in doing this too, the fathers tie together the beginning of this third section of the Catechism with the section that it's going to end it with, namely on prayer. You will notice, if you look carefully at this Lord's Day, that it mentions being converted, which brings us to the introduction to the law, which taught us what conversion is. So this article reaches back all the way to the introduction of this third section of the Heidelberg Catechism. And then also it ties it to the next section about prayer. We're going to see in the introduction to the section on prayer that it speaks about us praying to God for the grace and Holy Spirit. And that's mentioned already here in Lord's Day 44. Likewise, that we constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the subject matter of the thankful life with regard to the Ten Commandments plays a critical role in prayer. It motivates us and moves us to prayer, and especially with regard to the Holy Spirit. Now this portrait, this picture of the ordinary Christian life that's set forth here is very important because it's so practical. We have here, when we look closely, what a Christian life should look like and what it is normally for the child of God. And that over against, then, any other supposed portraits. There are errors There are other views that promote different ideas about what the Christian life should look like. One is perfectionism. That the Christian life will arrive at perfection. Yet in this life, if not one that's completely sinless, then virtually almost sinless. And you can imagine, not only is that false, but there are severe implications of such a doctrine for the soul of the true Christian. Or, on the other hand, there is the view of antinomianism. Since one is not saved by the law itself, it has no such power. And since we are saved from the curse of the law, no longer under the law, in fact, the law is a ministration of death in a very real sense, therefore, what's the use of preaching the law? Should it even be preached? And if it's preached, should it be preached strictly? The antinomian says, no. In fact, there's no real trying even, or even to move and try to urge the children of God to try to live according to the commandments. 
that they say is against the gospel of grace. Over against these views stands the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 44. Then it answers all kinds of questions that we are going to have, all Christians are going to have. Not only what should my life look like, but when it looks like that, why then do I still have in my heart all these wicked and evil thoughts and desires? Why are they there? Why are they so prevalent? What's going on in my life? Why am I so tempted by certain sins or even by every kind of temptation? Is it even possible to obey God's law in any sense whatsoever? Can I love not only my neighbor, but can I even love the law of God that I sin against and that condemns me? Is it possible to make progress in the Christian life? These questions and others, the Heidelberg Catechism answers. Let's consider this Lord's Day under the theme, The Ordinary Christian Life. We'll notice its characteristic. Secondly, its agency. And finally, its goal. The first thing that we learn here from the Heidelberg Catechism and its exposition of the Tenth Commandment, as well as the entire law, is that the ordinary Christian life is characterized by one thing. One word characterizes the entire Christian life, and that is holiness. The ordinary Christian, the normal Christian, the average Christian, indeed all Christians can be and will be and are characterized by holiness. Without holiness, there is no Christian. And there is no Christian without holiness. To be a Christian is to be holy, to be sanctified. Holiness is to be devoted to God. Holiness is when an individual is devoted in their heart, mind, soul, and strength with their body in all of their life, in one way or another, to the service of God. Devoted to doing the will of God is set apart from everything that is unholy, everything that belongs to the world, everything that is opposed to God and gives themselves to God to serve Him and to love Him. That's what holiness is. Even as we have a holy Scriptures that is set apart from all other Scriptures, all other books, and we have a holy Sabbath day set apart from all other days for the service of the Lord, so a Christian is set apart, dedicated to, in devotion and service to God and from all other humans, all other sin and iniquity. We learn here that holiness is not simply a matter of outward behavior. Holiness is not even mainly a matter of what one does with his mouth and with his feet and with his hands and with his body. 
If there is one thing we learned from the summary of the law and the exposition of it, it is that. That holiness does not consist simply in outward actions, but it is a matter of inward actions. It has to do with the heart and with the will. The Heidelberg Catechism here speaks of obeying with a sincere resolution. Notice that holiness is not simply to begin to live, but to begin to live with a sincere resolve, a desire, a will. It brings us back to conversion. Not only does this Lord's Day speak of conversion, can those who are converted to God, holiness is an aspect of conversion. To be converted, one is converted from being unholy to being holy, from being unsanctified to being sanctified. And if we go back to the beginning of this section, this section especially on the law of God, but also prayer, where it brings up conversion, we mentioned at that time to take note what conversion is. That conversion, even as defined by the catechism, wasn't simply doing good and not doing evil, but it had to do with the heart. What is the mortification of the old man? It is a sincere sorrow of heart. It's something found inside. Holiness consists of a sincere sorrow of heart. What is the quickening of the new man? It is a sincere joy of heart. A sorrow and a joy of heart. And then notice, and a love and delight again inward feelings and emotions and desires and will love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works this brings up a couple of important points right here number one any understanding of the gospel and of our salvation that leaves out the will and the desires, perhaps even out of a fear of promoting the false gospel of free willism or salvation by one's free will. That's the notion that says that you are saved or your salvation depends upon a choice or your willing or that which you do by your will naturally. And in response to that, it has happened where some have taken the position that it is the Reformed faith then that we do not teach any such free will. We do not teach that we are saved in a salvation that involves even our will. That salvation, including sanctification, is simply some sort of outward act upon us and an operation in us such that we are entirely passive. Not only is that notion foolish on the very face of it, 
For how can one serve God in prayer and the holy life passively with their body? To be passive means that one does nothing even with their mouth or their ears or their hands and their feet, let alone inwardly in the heart. The folly of such a notion, perhaps even in defense of the gospel, is brought out even here in the Heidelberg Catechism when it emphasizes resolve, and it even defines sanctification in terms of sorrow and joy and love and delight, all things that are done inwardly. And let's not forget that this is connected to the Tenth Commandment, which is one that speaks directly to the heart. For one can outwardly observe in a certain sense, all the commandments, but still covet and thus violate all of them. And no one would know really by looking at that person. Secondly, let's keep this in mind because this is a fundamental characteristic of the great characteristic of the ordinary Christian holiness. Let's not make the mistake of defining holiness simply or even mainly as outward behavior. No, we can do that. We can easily do that because it involves outward behavior. And we know, even from the Catechism and from its instruction on the law of God, that one cannot have such an inner desire, such a sorrow over sin, and such a joy for the will of God that it doesn't come to expression, it will always come to expression by one's deeds, with the mouth and with the body. And we must insist on that. We must insist on that over against anyone that would simply say that being a Christian is merely a matter of the heart. That what I do with my body and my lips and my tongues fundamentally doesn't speak to me or about me. It is no evidence of what I really am. The catechism destroys that notion. But at the same time, let us also not despair. The ordinary Christian life is not mainly or even certainly exclusively what we do with our bodies. Holiness, fundamentally, at its root, at its source, has to do with the heart. If one asks himself, am I a Christian? One can answer that question by simply asking this question. What do I find in my heart about the law of God? Because don't forget the law of God is the expression of the will in God. How can one have a sincere joy and delight as well as a sorrow over sin? How can one have a delight and a love to live according to the will of God without having that same love and delight for the will of God that's expressed in the Ten Commandments. That's the expression of it. In other words, the ordinary Christian, when it comes to holiness, is going to look, first of all, inwardly. And we may be afraid to do that. And we might be afraid to do that even because or when we know that there's hypocrites. There are people who fake it and can fake it, 
Outwardly, they present to everyone that they're a good Christian, but inwardly, they hate the law of God. They're very content with who they are and their sinfulness in their heart. They allow it to remain there unchecked, unfettered, without any battle over it at all. But let us at the same time remember that if one has love and delight for the law of God, for the will of God, a sincere resolution, a resolve in their will, in their heart, to live according to the will of God, a sincere sorrow of heart over their sin, they are holy. Oh, it's not that which makes them holy, but they have that because they are holy. Holiness is an operation of the Spirit upon the heart, and it first shows itself there in the heart. And there from the heart, it governs and controls all the actions of an individual. Another point that needs to be made is that true holiness and sanctification also has this characteristic. It might seem obvious, but it needs emphasis, especially over against many supposed definitions of holiness and what holiness is claimed to be today. Namely, holiness is devotion and consecration to God. Oh, make no mistake that devotion and consecration to God will express itself with regard to the neighbor. The individual that loves God in their heart, mind, soul, and strength will also love their neighbor. It's impossible to love God without also loving your neighbor. But that's not its main focus. That's not its main direction. Holiness is devotion to God. That's how it's defined. That's how it's explained here. That needs to be emphasized over the view that holiness today really has nothing to do with God. One can live in open fornication. One can live in open homosexual relationships. One can open in, live in open abuse and murder of one's spouse or fellow neighbor. One can live a life of thievery. But as long as they love their neighbor. They're holy. They're sanctified. They're a Christian. They're a member of the church. That's not true. First of all, holiness is always directed to God. Holiness is devotion to God. Holiness really is fellowship with God. It's to walk with God. It's to talk with God. It is to live according to His commandments. To delight in that. It is to pray to Him. It is to worship Him. It is to love to hear Him speak to you. It's to recognize that you belong to Him and that you no longer belong to the world. That you are separated and different. You aren't like other human beings in that sense. You've been born again. You've been born from above. You have been taken into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are a member of His body, and therefore you resemble Him. That's what 2 Corinthians 3 was talking about when it said, when you look in the mirror of the gospel, what you see is Jesus Christ. That's who you see there. That's the glory you see. 
Now, what's it saying? What it's saying is when you look in a mirror, you see yourself. But you don't see yourself. You don't see yourself as you are born, as you are naturally in Adam. What you see is the holy you, the sanctified you. And that is to resemble Jesus Christ. You look like Him. You act like Him. You think like Him. More on that this evening. Notice that the Catechism in this regard also sets forth this as regards holiness. That it consists of obedience to the law of God not only. It's a small beginning of the new obedience. Notice in the first place it's a small beginning. No matter how long you live, no matter how holy you are, no longer, no matter how far you progressed, it's a small beginning. And that's true of everyone, even the Apostle Paul, who had progressed much, much farther than you and I will ever progress by God's grace. Why small? Well, simply look at the law and look at what it requires. Absolute perfection in every thought, word, and deed. How many thoughts, how many words, how many deeds do you have just in an hour? Everyone perfectly conformed to the law of God, inwardly and outwardly, with absolute sorrow over any sin and absolute love and delight in God. And we say, oh, 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 what a small beginning. But notice, too, a beginning. In every child of God, there is a beginning. It's there. It's not missing. It's not lacking. It's not something that you have to look around to discover or find. It will be there. Take note that the Catechism here is teaching that every child of God is able, in a very real sense, to keep the commandments of God. The Heidelberg Catechism here does not teach that such is our depravity and such is our state after God does His work that we are entirely unable to keep the commandments of God. That is not Reformed. That is not creedal. That is not biblical. Oh yes, a child of God is totally depraved, but that's not all he is. He is someone that has a small beginning of the new obedience. That means he is able to keep in a very real way, although small and although just a beginning, the commandments of God. Let me put it another way. Not one of us who is an ordinary Christian may use the excuse, I can't. I can't. Oh, of yourself and in yourself you can't. But you may say that entirely and wholly, I can't. I can't love God at all. I can't love my neighbor at all. I can't stop steving, stealing. I can't stop committing adultery. It's just too great. It's too powerful. That's not holiness. And then you are not holy. But notice also that this is with regard to all the commandments. An ordinary Christian can't say, well, I keep this commandment or that commandment, and I have a small beginning with this or that one, but I have no beginning whatsoever with regard to others. No, no. Holiness is a sincere sorrow about all sins, all sins, and it's a love and delight to live according to all the commandments of God. That's included in the small beginning. It's not small in the sense that we keep one or two and the other eight go out the window. Even with regard to the tenth commandment, coveting, child of God finds a desire 
a resolution to not covet. Why is that? Because the salvation of our God through Jesus Christ is a complete deliverance. Deny that and you deny Jesus as a complete Savior. That's interesting because oftentimes if you teach this, you'll be charged with denying Jesus as a complete Savior. Strange. It's the exact opposite. Exactly because whom Jesus justifies, He also sanctifies. Exactly because Jesus who died is also raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. Exactly because Jesus saves and that salvation is a liberty, a liberty not only from the guilt of sin, but also the power of sin that this is true. And then there's this. This is our glory. This is our blessedness. This is another point that's brought out in, in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 9. It talks about that which is glorious. Compares the glory of the child of God over against the glory that even Moses had, so he had to put a veil over his face when he went up on Mount Sinai and came back with the Ten Commandments. He compares the child of God, the ordinary Christian, the ordinary child of God over against even Moses. And he compares the ministration of the gospel to the ministration of death or the law of God through Moses. And he said there's no comparison. Because you need to look at the glory. Now that's strange. When you look in a mirror, is your face shining? Is there all sorts of brilliant light like Moses had? We'd we'd look at it and say, Paul, what are you talking about? I don't see any glory. Well, that's because you're not looking in the right place. You need to look inside the heart. Start there. And ask what you see. And if you see this resolution, if you see this love and delight, if you see that sorrow, that's our glory. That's our blessedness. It's not like the child of God lives the sanctified life, and then God says, oh, now, here's some blessing. It's not as if a child of God strives to live according to God's commandments and sorrow for sin, and God says, oh, here's some glory. But that is His glory. That is His blessedness. That's why the greatest glory and the greatest blessedness of the child of God is when that is all perfected in the life to come. But again now, about that ordinary Christian life, the catechism teaches that about holiness. It's absolute. It's there or it's not. You're either a Christian in that sense or you aren't. And there's no changing that. At the same time, the ordinary Christian life of holiness is an imperfect holiness. It is imperfect on this side of the grave. That too, the catechism makes clear. In fact, it's one of the main points. Only a small beginning. That is, it's imperfect. Why is that? Why is that? Is it because the grace of God is not sufficient? Is it because the Holy Spirit is not powerful enough? Is it because there's some defect in the gospel? Is it because there's some defect in us that's more powerful than God? Sometimes we can think that. And the answer is much simpler than that. Because your salvation on this side of the grace is, is a spiritual transformation. More on that in just a little bit. Regeneration is a thing that goes on in the heart. Holiness is, begins in the heart. And depravity is a part of your flesh. The reason this is, is because the Holy Spirit indwells us and operates in such a way that the depravity remains, all of it, in its totality. The operations of the Holy Spirit do not eliminate 
that total depravity, nor do they improve it. It remains just as corrupt as it ever was in all of your flesh. And there's only one way to get rid of it. To die. That depravity is in your flesh. And the only way that it is removed, the only way that it doesn't influence you in any way whatsoever is you have to die. So if you're living, it's still there. That's the issue. That's how we have to see sanctification too. Sanctification does not improve the old man of sin. It does not change your depravity. It does not make it less than total. But at the same time, that total depravity, that depravity is in your flesh. And you must die for it to be ended. So that too answers the many questions that we have about who we are. Why if I'm converted do I sin? Why, if I have this sincere resolution of heart that I find myself not so resolved sometime? Why is it that I can live my life and seem to have progress in the Christian life only to be tempted and fall into sin? Why can I remain in sin for so long until God wakes me up sometimes very drastically from my blindness? Why is it that discipline is necessary in the Christian church? The answer is found here, right in Lord's Day 44. Because on the one hand, holiness characterizes the child of God, but it's an imperfect holiness because of our flesh, because of who we are, because of our depravity. And this, you understand, extends inwardly. When we talk about the flesh, we don't mean simply the body, but we mean the fleshly soul. That's why it's connected to the Ten Commandments. That's why our fathers treat it here, because covetousness speaks to the heart. The Apostle Paul even speaks about that in Romans 7. He talks about his life as a Pharisee and how God converted him, and, and he noticed that he thought he could keep all the Ten Commandments. thought he was doing a pretty good job of it until he focused on the Tenth Commandment and realized the Tenth Commandment blew all that thinking up. Because even if he didn't steal, there was the thought to steal. There was covetousness, a desire for his neighbor goods. This is what explains so many of our falls into temptation. Why did David fall into his great sin with Bathsheba? And the answer is because long before he had coveted another man's wife. This is who you and I are, beloved. And yet... There is progress. We may learn more and more. And we become more and more conformable. This too belongs to the ordinary Christian life. It's never stagnant. There should be a certain discontent always. A certain dissatisfaction. That we aren't what we ought to be. And yet when we look back, we should be able to say, I'm different than I was even a week ago. I've been empowered. I've been enriched. I find a stronger resolve. I find a greater love for my God than maybe I even had yesterday. And certainly if time extends backwards, we can see that even more and more. And this is reformed. Again, this is something that's challenged. Sanctification is made to be like the state of justification or righteousness. In justification or righteousness, you either have it or you don't. You're either justified or you're not. 
You're either in a state of justification or you're not. With sanctification, that's true, yet that sanctification itself grows. One can love God today and love God more tomorrow. One can be conformable to the divine law of God and be more and more conformable a year from now. And that's normal. When we say ordinary, beloved, keep in mind we're talking about the Christian as a rule. Yes, there are outliers. There are those like the thief on the cross that lived godless, wicked lives and were converted by our Lord. But at that moment of conversion, that thief was sanctified, as explained here. And yes, there are other variations that one might find, but this is what ordinary looks like. This describes you and me. Now, about the agency. There is an agency. Actually, there's an agent, and he uses agencies and agents. Who works this? Do you and do I? No, we're certainly active in it. We're certainly active in it. How in the world can one be sanctified? How in the world can one be dedicated to God unless he is not actually dedicated to God? Actually loves God. I love God. You love God as sanctified Christians. In your heart, you You love and you delight to live according to all the commandments of God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But it's God who works that. And specifically now, God the Holy Spirit. That's Scripture and the creeds. Even in 2 Corinthians 3 that we read, notice how it ended. Now the Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That's the liberty of salvation. The liberty of deliverance from sin and death. Not only as regards guilt, but the power of sin. There's liberty where the Spirit of the Lord is. But we all, with open face, beholding as a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed, notice that word, into the same image, from glory to glory. There's that progressive sanctification again. That's the idea of more and more. From glory to glory, and from glory to even more glory. From glory to glory to glory until we reach glory. But notice how it's worked, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That's our creeds too. Belgian Confession, Article 9, calls the Spirit our sanctifier by His dwelling in our hearts. Article 24 of the Belgic Confession, we are sanctified by His grace. Grace is the code word for the Holy Spirit. Heidelberg Catechism says we are washed, that that to be washed by the blood of Jesus Christ is to be, quote, renewed by the Holy Spirit and sanctified to be members of Christ, end quote. Question answer 70. And even look at this Lord's Day. Talks about praying for the grace of the Spirit. That is the grace of the Spirit. The grace that is the Spirit. Why is that? Because sanctification is a work of salvation. It's not that justification is our salvation and sanctification is the fruit of that salvation. That's wrong. But sanctification is a work of salvation. 
It's part of that liberty. It's part of our deliverance. And since it's salvation, and since only God saves, sanctification must be a work of God. It's a work of God that makes me work. It's a work of God in my heart that makes me willing and able. It's a work of God that gives me a love and delight to live according to the commandments of God. It's a work of God that gives me a small beginning of the new obedience, but it's a work of God nevertheless, and only of God. When the child of God thanks God, as he's going to do in prayer, he thanks God not only for the forgiveness of sins, but his deliverance from evil. And he goes to God not only to forgive his sins, but to deliver him from evil. That's the power of evil. It's the Spirit of Christ or God that's given to Jesus Christ and then was poured out in Pentecost. It's the Spirit of Christ that goes forth with the preaching of the Holy Gospel that enters our hearts, that regenerates us. And regenerating us sanctifies us. Delivers us over to God. Makes us members of Christ. Separates us from the world. Transforms us into His image more and more in this life. And here you see as the connection between the treatment of the law and the treatment of prayer in the next Lord's Day. What are the results of the preaching of the law of God? Is that it moves us to pray for the Spirit. And we pray for that Spirit because He is the Spirit of sanctification. There's the connection. But make no mistake too, the Holy Spirit uses means. The Holy Spirit uses the means of the preaching of the gospel. That's why it's called the chief means of grace. The Heidelberg Catechism recognizes that even in question and answer 15, 115, when it talks about the preaching of the law of God. Now this is remarkable. Because the law itself has no power to save. The law itself has no power to sanctify. And yet the Spirit uses it in His work of sanctification. And that's brought out clearly. So clearly it cannot be denied in question and answer 15. Read the quote that I put of Herman Huxma in the bulletin if you doubt that that's Protestant reform. Why will God have His Ten Commandments so strictly preached? Why is it bringing that up? Why is it asking that? Because it's getting into the question of how the Spirit sanctifies us. He uses that. In fact, He uses the strict preaching. Not preaching of the law of God. That changes God's demands. That softens them. That doesn't concern itself with stuff of the heart, but only outwardly, and only the negative and not the positive. No, strictly, as it was preached here in this Christian church, it's only strict preaching that the Spirit uses. Where the law is not strictly preached, or where the law is preached wrongly, the Spirit leaves. He uses only that kind of preaching to work sanctification And notice, it's preached as a must, not simply as a will. Well, people of God, you're saved, so you will do this eventually, somehow, some way. But he uses even the must, the demand, the call to duty, the call to action. And what does the Holy Spirit do with that? Well, it says very plainly, so that we learn our whole life more and more 
to know our sinful nature. Exactly because sanctification is progressive. It's not enough that we simply know our sin. We need to know it more and more and more and more and more. And there's only one way to know that, and that's by the law and the strict preaching of the law. So that about the time we're content to put our thumbs under our armpits and say, I'm fine, pat ourselves on the back, the law comes along and destroys it and says, no, you're not. Look at your nature. Look how sinful you really are, even as a holy child of God. Why? And thus, in this way, to work, to bring us to, that we become more and more earnest in seeking the remission of sin and righteousness of Christ. So, notice that. I have the remission of sins. I have the righteousness of Christ. And yet, I need to be more earnest in seeking it, and desiring it, and going to God for it. That's reformed. It's not that you do it once and you're fine. You're good. No, we need to be more and more earnest in that. And likewise, that we constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit. We need the grace of the Holy Spirit. More and more. More and more and more and more. Exactly because of that total depravity. Exactly because of that fountain of filth that's in our flesh. Exactly because of who and what we are. We need the grace of God more and more and more. And pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit. That tells you that the law has to be preached with the gospel. That strictly preaching of the law doesn't mean that one strictly preaches only the law. The law without the gospel does nothing. Without the gospel, you don't know where to go for the grace of the Holy Spirit. You don't even know about the Holy Spirit. You can't seek the remission of sins by God because you don't know what it is. You don't know where to go. You don't know how God gives it in His grace. And notice, too, that this is why we call it the rule of the thankful life. That is, it's not just simply a rule in the sense that it's a law, but it sets forth what the ordinary Christian looks like. It's the rule of a thankful life in the sense that it sets forth, this is what a Christian looks like. Oh yes, in part, only a small beginning, but this is what holiness looks like. This is what it is. This is what fellowship with God consists of. But there's more than that. It is amazing that in the light of the gospel, this all sets forth the goal of the ordinary Christian. Paul speaks of that in 2 Corinthians 3, and that's brought out in the Heidelberg Catechism when it talks about a perfection proposed to us in the life to come. Notice that. That's reformed. A perfection proposed to life to come. That isn't against the idea of Christ as a complete Savior. That Jesus is a complete Savior doesn't mean that there's not a perfection proposed in the life to come. In fact, it's even more expressive in the original, even uses that word, that we make progress until we have arrived at the goal of perfection. You see, if you have a beginning, you have an end. If you have a start, there's an end, a goal. And that goal is perfection. And notice it's in the life to come. It can't be in this life exactly because of where our depravity is located. But we must know, and we must believe that, and we must understand that, so that we also live with hope. You see, that too belongs to the ordinary Christian life. If in fact, this is who we are, if in fact the Spirit is working through the law of God, strictly preached in the light of the gospel, then there will be a hope, a 
an allure, a delight, a longing for that perfection. The child of God who knows his sin more and more, who seeks the remission of sin in Jesus Christ, comes to so hate and despise that nature and realizes there's no other way to be delivered from it. There is no biblical counseling that could deliver me from it. There is no reverend that can deliver me from it. There's no even strict preaching of the law that can deliver me to that kind of perfection. It's impossible. I must leave this life in God's time, at His appointed time. The ordinary child of God lives in this world saying, what a miserable place this is. What a miserable person I am by nature. How miserable is my sin. How terrible is death that takes away my loved ones. And how awful is my sin. I want that perfection. I desire it. I long for it. I can't wait for the day of my death. In the Lord's good time, when all that God demands, and all that God sets forth for me as His will, all that is pure and holy fellowship with Him is mine by His grace. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, O Lord, our God, we thank Thee for Thy good and right commandments, for the right exposition of them, the right understanding of them in the light of the Holy Gospel that brings to us Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who delivers us from our sin and misery by His death on the cross and the impartation of His Spirit, His resurrection and ascended Spirit. O Lord, to Thee we give thanks. Continue to sanctify us by that Spirit and to use the means of grace, including the preaching strictly of Thy law. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.